turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 8 for our reading of God's Word this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 17. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything. Although man's trouble lies heavy on him, for he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is Havel. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a havel that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is Havel. And I commend joy, for a man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night Do one's eyes see sleep? Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Uh, Join me in prayer one more time. Our great God, we do pray that the word would come with great power and great clarity. You have designed the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the word to effect your people. You've designed it to glorify Christ today, and that is our prayer, that Christ would be magnified, that our triune God would receive all praise, laud, and honor. But we also pray, God, that you would teach us how to live wise in this life, though wisdom is limited and rare Uh, We pray, God, that you would teach us how to live in this upside-down world. So grant, we pray, through the preaching of the word, 
today, next week, next month, and next year, that the preaching of the word, no matter who man preaches, might come like the rain and give us food for our souls today and forevermore. Amen. Well, you can stay there in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Thank you, Tim. I want to talk to you today, beloved congregation, about living wisely in an upside-down world. I want to talk to you today about living wisely in an upside-down world. One of the reasons Ecclesiastes, I believe, resonates so well with us is because the world in which the preacher lived in and struggled in, as we've seen here, is a world much like ours. When you read Ecclesiastes and you hear the sermon here, you tend to think this man knows my life. He knows my heart and he knows my world. And it's upside down. The wicked prosper. The righteous suffer. What's up with that? Yes, there are exceptions, but by and large, that's true. Wisdom is better than folly, but, you know, wisdom has its limits as well. Nostalgia isn't always what it seems to be. And God has crooked things in our life, and you know what? There's nothing you can do about it sometimes, or most of the time. These are those sucker punches that we've come to receive time and time again by the preacher in Ecclesiastes. Much of the preacher's life is upside down, just like ours. And so he concludes, you know, don't try to figure life out always. Don't run the rat race of trying to figure out why things are happening the way they are. You're going to come to the end of the road and you're not going to have the answer still. So he concludes, fear God, enjoy life, die, and be forgotten. What a message. That's Ecclesiastes for you. Chapter 8, until you die. Chapter 8 teaches you how to live wise until you are put in the ground and become nutrients for cows. Living wisely in an upside-down world. First, you need to obey authority. You must obey authority. Who is like the wise, verse 1, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? Wisdom is rare. Who knows it? Well, Joseph and Daniel knew a few things, but not a whole lot of people did. A man's wisdom makes his face shine, so wisdom gives you joy. So it's actually good to, be, to have wisdom, to be wise. You're going to, be, uh, you're going to be happy in this life. And there I'm not making a distinction between happy and joy. A man's wisdom makes his face shine. It radiates. Those who look to the Lord, Psalm 34, 5, are radiant. The hardness of his face is changed. So wisdom is rare. So cling to it. Have it. And then he says, verse 2, I say... Keep the king's command. 
because of God's oath to him. So obey authority. Literally watch the mouth of the king. And here I'm sure it's a little autobiographical of Solomon. He is the king at this point, I believe. Keep the king's command. Watch the mouth of the king because of God's oath to him. We'll get into that in just a moment. But essentially, classic with classic wisdom literature, wisdom literature is an exposition on the Ten Commandments, on God's moral law. So, what you have here as obeying authority or keep the king's command is an extrapolation of the fifth commandment. To honor your father and your, and your mother, which is basically the commandment to honor authority, to obey magistrates, to obey parents, to obey church leaders, to obey employers. This is nothing new for those of you familiar with the New Testament, 1 Peter 2. Honor the what? Honor the emperor, who was not a nice guy, by the way. Romans 13, be subject to the governing authorities. Obey authority. Honor them. Watch how you talk about them. Mark 12, Jesus says, render to Caesar those things that are Caesar's. Keep the king's command. Why? Verse 1, because of God's oath to him, I think the better reading actually is because of your oath to God. Which would mean that your obedience to authorities, employers, parents, church leaders, magistrates, is an expression of actually your obedience to God. It's not simply a horizontal thing we're doing here in obeying authority. Actually, when you obey authority, rightful authority, it is an expression of your oath to God, your worship of him, your love for him. So obey authority because of your oath to God. I know, very un-American at times, isn't it? Verse 3, be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. The state doesn't bear the sword in vain. So be careful of taking your stand in an evil cause, Solomon says, because he does whatever he pleases, you know. Revolutions are unwise, generally speaking. Joining a coup is rarely the answer. Revolts have a long history of failure, and you know what? Kings have a long history of putting down revolts. So watch the mouth of the king. Obey authority. Now, if civil disobedience is the right course of action, and sometimes it is, you better be sure. And in my opinion, it better be the last course of action. Not every overreach congregation is, let me put it this way, not every overreach merits civil disobedience. You tracking? So let's say, for example, that the state recommended we worship six feet apart. Just for example. And or to worship outside. That, to me, is the call on the church, I think, to do that. 
perhaps an overreach by the state, but we understand why they're doing it, I think. Does it merit civil disobedience? Are they calling us to sin? I don't think so. I don't think so. So we should obey authority. Now, what if the state recommended we don't sing or don't take the Lord's Supper or not gather at all? Some of you are thinking, where is he going here? That, to me, I think merits civil disobedience, but because I think it's a sin not to gather to worship God, but we don't disobey the king's command with an attitude of sticking it to the man. We respectfully disobey that command and hear me, you must be willing to receive the consequences. Not making a scene about it, but to humbly and respectfully receive the consequences of your rightful civil disobedience. By and large, obey authority, though there are times of civil disobedience. Verse 4, for the word of the Lord, or for the word of the king is supreme. This is why you should obey authority, is the reason for the word of the king is supreme, and Who may say to him, what are you doing? Uh, His word is law. His word is supreme. That's why you obey his his word. To disobey authority is to put your life at risk. And yet what do we see so much today? We see driving drunk, resisting arrest, disobeying parents, dishonoring employers, politicians, husbands, and church leaders. Again, beloved, this all goes back to your view of your oath to God. If you believe God instituted these magistrates or these parents or the employers in your life, and they are rightfully, though they may be wicked in themselves, though they are rightfully exercising justice, you need to obey them. Why? Ultimately, the final ground is because of your worship of God, not because of the magistrate's character. Verse 5, whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. Whoever keeps a command will know no evil way. So if you obey authorities in your life, generally speaking, you'll stay out of jail. If you, if you don't resist arrest and you don't drive drunk, you'll probably stay out of trouble. That's what he's saying. Not only that, the wise understand, look at it, the proper time and the just way. That is, the the wise understand not every hill is a hill to die on right now. They know the proper time and the just way. The wise can discern not only the issue to draw the line on, but when to draw the line and how to draw the line. So the preacher says to himself, verse 7, for he does not know what is to be. You don't know the future. Who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power or the day of death. 
There is no discharge from war, nor wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observe while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. So the preacher, he says to himself, you know, I looked at life, and I observed all political institutions and all things going on. I saw a man had power over another man to his hurt. And you know what I concluded? You don't know the future. You don't know what's going to happen. Verse 7, he does not know what is to be. You don't have power to retain the wind, no power over the day of your death. We don't know who's going to take office. So what's the conclusion? Don't worry, don't fret. Cast yourself on God, fear him, enjoy life. You don't know the future. We spend so much of our time rehearsing and speculating on what we do not know and what we cannot control. Why? We spend so much time fretting about what is to come. And we have no control over it. It's like, uh, it's like watching a new movie with your kids. If you have kids, you're watching a new movie and something happens and your son goes, oh no, what's going to happen next? Oh, that just happened. What is she going to do now? What's going to happen, Dad? What's going to happen? And you're like, you know, I don't know. Keep watching the movie. I don't know what's going to happen. That's life. I don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to happen. So, in, so instead of bucking every train and getting upset at the world all the time for everything. You know what? Don't worry about the future. Live life. Obey authority. Fear God. Wives, submit to your husbands. Church members, submit to your church leaders. Employees, submit to your, your employers. Robert, submit to your employer. That was her last week. Part of living wise in this life, beloved, so much of it, is it not obeying those who have power over you? Obey authority. You, you don't know the future. Two, fear God. You need to fear God in this upside-down world. Verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city when, where they had done such evil things. This also is Havel. So here's a guy who's wicked. The preacher tells us that. But he pretends to be religious. He went to church. He went in and out of the holy place. People thought he was a great guy. When he dies, he's praised because, hey, this guy looked good on the outside. Upside-down world. We live in an upside-down world. Verse 11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do 
evil. Do you know what happens, beloved, when justice is neglected or, de- or delayed? People begin to think that they can get away with evil. And they often do, <laughs> much to our chagrin. That shouldn't happen. Justice should come down. Judgment should be rendered. And Solomon says, this is the life we live in. Justice is often neglected and delayed. Welcome to life, the preacher says, in an upside-down world. Now, by the way, this is why the Bible commends capital punishment, in my opinion. Genesis 9, Romans 13, propositional retribution, all things considered, witnesses, Uh, You shed blood, your blood should be shed. Verse 12 and 13. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times, it prolongs his life. Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. There it is. Because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow. Because he does not fear God. In an upside-down world, the sinner prospers in a limited sense. He does evil a hundred times, the preacher says, and prolongs his life, but in an ultimate sense. And this is why I love Ecclesiastes. He takes this divine perspective at times. He just, um, this, this perspective intrudes upon our vision here in, here in Ecclesiastes. And he says, in an ultimate sense, the sinner's prosperous days are like a shadow here today and gone tomorrow. And that's what is so good, at least in part, about life being Havel. Because if your life, beloved, is short, so also is the wicked. They're like a shadow. Here today, gone tomorrow. The fool reasons to himself, because my sin hasn't caught up with me, Because justice is neglected, I'm going to live for myself. I'm going to worship myself. I'm going to prolong my life. I'm going to live for the here and now. And they they numb themselves to, to the reality of God and eternity. That's the reasoning of the fool. But the preacher reasons this way. You know what's better than prolonging your life? You know what's better than living for yourself, of giving your heart's desire to everything you want to? You know what's better than that? Fearing God. Fearing God. He says there in verse uh, 12, It will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. And I just want to sit here just a moment and talk about fearing God. Okay, are you with me? Thank you. Fearing God is not something we speak of often. We prefer the terms loving God, adoring God, trusting God, all good terms. But to fear God is often overlooked and neglected. References to the fear of God, beloved, in Scripture, either by explicit mention or illustration, are well into the hundreds. And it has gone out of our vocabulary by and large. It's stunning, even tragic, that a theme so dominant in Scripture can be so greatly neglected. So here we go. 
What does it mean to fear God? That's what I want to know. If, if it goes well with those who fear God, verse 12, I want to know what it is to fear God. So what does it mean to fear God? Two aspects. First, to fear God is to have a sense of terror and dread. You're probably thinking, no, it doesn't. Yes, it does. <laughs> Psalm 119, 120. You have to see this. Turn there. Psalm 119, 120. Two aspects. I'm going to give you a definition after the two aspects, okay? First aspect is to have a sense of terror and dread. Psalm 119, 120. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. That's a Christian saying that, by the way. My flesh shakes, is the sense, for fear of you. And I am afraid of your judgments. There is a sense in the believer, beloved, where you must have terror and dread of what God is. That his justice is absolutely inflexible. And he is consumed with a burning holiness. That is the word of a Christian. Now I understand Romans 8.1 that there is now therefore no condemnation in Christ. I believe that with all my heart. And yet, beloved, and yet, you must have a sense of terror and dread of what God is despite if that judgment does not fall on you. My flesh shakes for fear, and I am afraid of your judgments. Second aspect, there must be a fear of veneration and love. A fear of veneration and love. Luke chapter 5, turn there. This is, I think, the aspect that we most often think of when we talk about fear, but I wanted to give you the first one because I think that too is neglected. We actually see both in this illustration here. The fear of veneration and love. Luke 5, 4 to 11. Jesus is preaching the gospel like he always was. He's by a, he's by a lake. Verse 3, he gets into one of the boats, Simon's. He's put out a little bit from the land. He sat down and taught the people from the boat. Verse 4, and when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. What are you thinking? But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the boat to come and help them. And they came and filled with filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, so he's getting the point here, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. So there's that sense I think Peter has of terror and dread. Oh my goodness, this is not a mere man. Depart from me. Because I understand what happens to sinful man in your presence. 
Verse 9. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of the fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with, with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. Oh, from now on you will be catching men. I wonder what it was like to hear those words in Peter's soul. Oh, do not be afraid. What a relief. And when they had brought down their, their, when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So there's a sense of, of terror and dread even in Peter. But then he, then he gets that word of the gospel from our Lord. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I will not consume you in my wrath. Instead, Peter, follow me. And what does Peter do? He leaves everything and he follows him. Why? Because the fear in Peter had a veneration and a love for Christ. There was such a burning holiness in Jesus and an inflexible justice in him. And yet Peter saw in that an attraction. I want to be with that man. I'm going to leave everything in my life and follow him. There must be a sense in your soul, beloved, of a fear of God that has a veneration and a love for Christ. So to fear God, I take that to mean. To fear God, here's my short definition, means you have your soul possessed by the greatness and goodness of God in Christ. Your soul is absolutely overcome with the greatness and goodness of God in Christ. So, Ecclesiastes, the preacher says, the way to live in an upside-down world is not soak up everything for yourself, live for your heart's desire. That's a fool. The way to live in this upside-down world is to fear God, to have a sense of his majesty, have a sense of his grace. And, beloved, that only comes, that only comes with you knowing God in Christ in Scripture. That only comes with knowing God in Christ in Scripture. Herman Boving says, Dutch theologian, really there's only one, one means of grace, he said. It's the Word. It's the Word. That's how we know God savingly. That's how he's revealed himself to us in Christ. Know him. Don't tell me you fear God and don't read the Bible. Third, be joyful. Be joyful. I love how the preacher just turns on a dime. Verse 14, there is a havel that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. What's up with that? <laughs> what an upside down world. The righteous get what the, what the wicked should get. That's not right. And, the, and Solomon says, again, welcome to life in an upside down world, a cursed and fallen place. So what does he say? What's his solution, you think? What would you write after that? It's all vanity. It's all Havel, right? Short-lived. And then what? You see, you see the righteous getting what the wicked deserve. What would you say next? 
You know what the preacher says? Verse 15. I commend joy. What? What is wrong with you? We live in a messed up world. How can I be happy? What's going on? Verse 15, I commend joy. I love this. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. What is wrong with this guy? There's a violation of justice going on. And you want to be happy? Are you on drugs? No. He understands the shortness of life. For this will go well with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Are you getting tired of this? Are you getting tired of this message? Because I'm not. I'm starting to think, perhaps more than any other voice in the Old Testament, the preacher in Ecclesiastes is a preacher of joy. You tell me. He just got done seeing the violation of justice, and my heart is angry. And he says, you know what? You just need to be happy. Obviously, he's not discounting righteous anger. But let me just, let's just look at this through Ecclesiastes, this, this theme of being joyful. 2, 24 to 25. You're spinning at work all week. And then he says, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This is Havel and striving after the wind. You know, you're striving all week at work, and you just need to be joyful. Chapter 3, 12 to 13. I perceive that there is nothing better for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. 5, 18 to 20. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. It's your lot to be joyful. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his, to in his toil. This also is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with what? Joy. In his heart. 7.14. In the day of prosperity, be what? Joyful. Joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not found anything that will be after him. And there's actually still more to come. He's going to tell you to be joyful again. And perhaps what's even more remarkable is that this man commends joy not in a world absent of pain, but in a world full of it. 
What a stud. What a stud. The preacher's been very clear concerning the enigma and trials of life. Unstable jobs, orphans, judicial corruption, blown tires, broken legs, sex trafficking, leaky faucets, failed adoptions, monthly bills, envy, project deadlines, project deadlines, project deadlines, (laughs) rainy vacations, broken marriages, pride, pornography, slippery roads, severed relationships, selfishness, empty bank accounts, bee stings, and the ever-present death of loved ones. And the preacher says, you and I live in the same world, and you know what you need to be? Joyful. To be joyful means to find heartfelt pleasure in God and in his God-approved gifts amidst both prosperity and adversity. Catch that? To be joyful means to find heartfelt pleasure in God and his God-approved gifts amid both prosperity and adversity. Is that you today? Is that you? Are you enjoying God's grace? Are you able to see the light of God's goodness today? And are you enjoying his God-approved gifts. If you are, embrace them. You will need them in days of trial. Or perhaps you're in darkness now. And I'm almost done here. Perhaps you're in darkness now, in a fog. I remember one time growing up, camping at Lake Tahoe with my parents and waking up early, leaving the tent, and standing on the shore of Lake Tahoe, and it was enveloped in fog. And a little lake was there, but I couldn't see it. Is that you? You're you're enveloped in darkness and in fog. You know God is there in the vastness of his being, ready to help. But you can't see him. I want to encourage you, if that is you, do not be anxious. Do not fret. The Lord is on your side. Though you can't find out God's ways, he's always faithful, and he won't let you go. My friends, if God was faithful to send his son to take your sin and my sin upon a tree, don't you think he is faithful to bring you all the way home? Don't be anxious about this life. You need to obey authority. You need to be joyful. And you need to fear God. And then you're going to get put in the ground and we're going to go have lunch. Let's pray. Our great God, help us to live wisely in this upside-down world. It can be so frustrating and so hard, 
And yet, there our God is. There you are. Though we cannot see you, though the fog and darkness envelops us, you are there. Oh, the vastness of your being. All that you are, you are there. To you be the glory.